0: Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed a podcast for Christadelphians. The movements of Russia herald the return of Jesus Christ. Now that's quite a bold statement, and it's uh, a belief of the Christadelphian community that Ezekiel chapters like Ezekiel thirty-eight um, describe a future event which is a very popular chapter, a very well-known chapter in Scripture, but it describes an event of a King of the North and the King of the South putting up against each other in the last days. and We believe this to be our time. So Christadelphians get very excited uh, and motivated when we talk about Bible prophecy. The Bible prophecies concerning Russia's invasion of the Middle East are explained fairly at length in this class Specifically, the speaker uses Ezekiel 38 and Zechariah 14 with some reference to Daniel chapter 11. So all these tie together nicely. The events in the world are shown to be fulfilling these prophecies right now. Christ is coming to destroy the powers of this world and reign as King in Jerusalem after setting up God's kingdom on earth that is the reality of the Bible message and it's not one that is commonly known so we urge you to listen to this podcast there is a video version of this podcast as well um, showing the slides that the speaker used Um, but please do let us know your comments and thoughts what you think about these chapters how you would interpret them um, but this has been a long standing position of the Christadelphian community for many, many years. Please leave us a message um, if you wish to, a voice message, and we'll do our best to publish them. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you. God bless.
1: Israel had its beginnings in the land of Egypt. God took Israel excuse me, out of the land of Egypt. He removed them from the bondage and the slavery in that land, and by miraculous events he brought them out of that country through the Red Sea and gave them an inheritance in the, the land of Israel, what was called in the Bible the promised land. Now as they were about, as Israel was about to enter that land of Canaan, the nations that were there, that were possessing the land became aware of what God had done in Egypt. And I'd like to um, present to you an account of one of the inhabitants of Jericho and have a listen to what she had to say. Two spies were sent into Jericho and they entered into dialogue with this woman called Rahab. These are her words. She says, I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us. And that all of the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what he did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. So these things took place some years before these spies came to Jericho but it was fresh in the mind of the inhabitants. When they saw Israel moving towards their land, they were absolutely fear-stricken and for, for good reason. Let's finish what she says. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath." And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? One day, those words are going to be uttered through the mouth of every single inhabitant of the earth. Now, that's a big statement, isn't it? But, you know, one of the vehicles that God is going to use to achieve that is the nation of Israel. God's not finished with Israel, despite what many people may say. God's got an incredible work for them, And he's going to use them, as we shall see, for good and for bad. He's going to use them in a way which draws international attention to God himself. So that when God has finished the events that we'll see tonight, when he's finished those events with Israel, the inhabitants of the world will say, the God of Israel is the only true God. Now that's going to take some changes. Okay. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that God has a purpose and a plan. He wants to reveal himself and make himself known to all nations and affect people's lives for the better. We'll talk more about that later. And the future outworkings of that purpose involve Israel. Israel is at the centre of God's plan to make himself known to all nations. So there's some context to to what we're about to consider now, two passages of the Bible that deal heavily with the the nation of Israel. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on two chapters of the Bible. The Bible's like a library. It contains 66 books in all. And we're going to focus on two of those books, which are taken from a section of the Bible called the Prophets. The first is the book of Ezekiel, in particular Ezekiel chapter 38, And secondly, the book of Zechariah, which was written about 70 years later. So both of them written over two and a half thousand years ago. We want to convince you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, that though they're two and a half thousand years old, their prophecies are absolutely relevant for today. So the first of those books that we want to look at is Ezekiel chapter 38. Let's begin with that. And here's a brief summary of the chapter. The chapter describes the invasion and conquest of Israel. Here's Israel featuring, as we said, the invasion and conquest of Israel in the latter days by a confederacy of nations headed by Russia. We're going to prove that to you in a little while. The event prompts divine intervention by which Israel is delivered, and the God of Israel is seen to be the only true God. You remember the words of Rahab? Well, the last verse of Ezekiel chapter 38 finishes this way. God says, By bringing to pass these events, thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be made known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. That's what God is going to achieve by these events that we're going to consider tonight. So it's evident there's momentous events about to happen. This conflict that we're going to see in Ezekiel 38 is is not some skirmish that we might have seen in the Middle East in recent years that goes for a, a matter of weeks or maybe months. This is about a world war. You know, there's a number of other chapters in the Bible that are we might call them parallel accounts of Ezekiel 38 and they have something to say about these events as well for example in Daniel chapter 12 in describing the magnitude of this event it has this to say it says it is a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation now to put that in some perspective what Zechariah tells us about this event is that it will result in two-thirds, <coughs> excuse me, two-thirds of the nation of Israel perishing. That's a very sad fact. Two-thirds of the nation of Israel perishing as a result of this conflict. You know, that's a, about equivalent in number to all those that perished in the Holocaust. And perhaps that's a A suitable point, ladies and gentlemen, to make a brief comment about this, and that is that as Bible students, we don't delight in talking about these events. We are not warmongers. We're not interested in war. The purpose of discussing this conflict tonight is to give you confidence that the Bible is true and God has some significant changes that he's going to bring to pass on the earth for good. Good but there is going to be a period that we want you to be aware of. For you, for your children, and for your grandchildren's sake, we appeal to you to listen to this message and to look at the signs of the times about us that we're going to discuss and to do something about it. So what are we told in Ezekiel chapter 38 that gives us some idea of when this is going to happen? We don't know exactly when, but we're given pointers. Here's the pointers. Well, first of all, sorry, here's a a bit of an overview of the chapter, just to give us a bit of a framework and an idea of what it's about. The first seven verses are about the Confederacy, the invaders that come into the land of Israel. Verse 8 is about the location and timing of the invasion. Verses 9 to 13 deal with Russia's victory over Israel and its allies. The remainder of the chapter is about how Russia will subsequently be overthrown in a battle that is styled elsewhere in the Bible as Armageddon, by which Israel is delivered and the God of Israel is seen to be the only true God. So please appreciate that we don't have time to go into any of these any this chapter or uh, Zechariah 14 in any detail, but there's an overview and we're going to pick selected parts out of that chapter. So, let's come on to uh, look at the timing of this invasion. We're told three things in the chapter that that help us get some idea of when this invasion is going to happen. The invasion will occur in the latter days, verse 16 tells us, when Israel is dwelling confidently in unwalled villages. Now, the term latter days in the Bible, you can you can check this for yourself, is a term that consistently refers to the time period surrounding the return of Christ, either immediately before or after. That's the latter days. You can check that for yourself. We're told that the nation is going to be dwelling confidently and it's going to be dwelling in unwalled villages. Now, when you put those three points together, the conclusion you must reach is this. That it could only apply to post 1948. Now, why do we say that? Well, simply this: if we, if we, um, first of all, recognise that from 1948, moving backwards in time to AD 70, the nation didn't exist. In AD 70, the Romans scattered the Jews to the four corners of the earth and dismembered the nation. So. From 1948, going back in time to AD 70, there was no Jewish nation in the land. What about prior to AD 70? Going back further in time from AD 70 backwards, when the Jews did dwell in the land, they dwelt in walled villages. So you put all that together and you reach the conclusion that the only time period in which this could be fulfilled is post-1948, 1948 1948 being the date when the nation of Israel was established in the land after being in the dust for over 2,000 years. Let's have a look now at this confederacy that comes down into the land. We've got here Um, some select verses from Ezekiel 38 taken from the emphasised Bible. We've chosen the emphasised Bible simply because it's more literal and is helpful when we're trying to nail down the meaning of some of these countries listed. So let's read that together. The word of Yahweh, Yahweh is the, the name of God that he's chosen to reveal himself by. The word of Yahweh came unto me saying, Son of man, so he's addressing Ezekiel as the son of man, Set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy concerning him. goes on to say in verse 5 that Persia, Ethiopia and Libya will be with Gog, all of them with shield and helmet. Goma and all her hordes, the house of Tagama, the remote men of the north and all his hordes, and many people with thee. And finally, we're told in verse 15, therefore wilt thou come out of thy place, out of the remote parts of the north, thou and many people with thee. So, as we said, because this this entity called Gog, this person called Gog, is the head of the confederacy, this chapter is directed to Gog. What do we know about Gog? Gog, we're told, is of the land of Magog. He's the the sovereign of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. So we can think of whatever territory that is, and we're going to establish that in a short while. Rosh, Meshach, Tubal defines what we might call his primary dominion. So, for example, to, to use an analogy, Second World War, Germany, its prime dominion was the boundaries of Germany itself, but it annexed other countries, which we might call secondary dominions. But the primary dominion of Germany was Germany itself. In like manner, uh, we're told here Rosh, Meshek, and Tubal is the primary dominion of Gog. So he's sovereign of that territory. He comes from the remote parts of the north. The RSV translation puts it as uttermost parts. And he's the commander of a multinational force that includes Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Goma and Tagama. So he's obviously got quite a bit of influence. Now, clearly we don't have time to go uh, into detail about what these territories are so what we're going to do is we're just going to focus on Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. That's going to be, if you like, the first part of our presentation tonight. We're going to see how the Bible speaks about Russia and what it's going to do. And then in the second part of the the evening, we're going to look at, you might call it the sequel. We're going to jump to another part of the Bible, to Zechariah chapter 14, and see what impact this event is going to have on the world. Okay. We're told Gog is going to be the sovereign of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Let's begin by looking at Rosh, what is the territory of Rosh? There was a man called Gesenius. He um, lived, I believe, in the 18th century. And he wrote a, um, a, called e, a Hebrew called a e lexicon. So he was a student of Hebrew. The Old Testament w- was written in Hebrew, new in Greek. He studied the Hebrew and he studied history. And this was his conclusion. He says concerning the name Rosh, it's a proper noun, so it's the the name of a, um, a place or country, of a northern nation mentioned with Tubal and Meshech, and he says, undoubtedly, the Russians, who are mentioned by Byzantine writers of the 10th century under the name Ross, dwelling to the north of Taurus and described by Ibn Foslan, an Arabic writer of the same age, as dwelling on the river Ra, so the river Ra is this area here. So that's one little indicator. But he says categorically, Rosh is the most ancient name by which Russia is known. So let's lock that in. But there's more. There are other um, students of Hebrew and lexicographers and history- historians that have something to say about Rosh. Samuel Bocart wrote a book called Sacred Geography. It's a famous work and it goes into all the various places in the Bible. He studied, likewise, the name Rosh, and he says this, Rosh, or, or Rosh, it's just a variant on the same name, is the most ancient form under which history makes mention of the name of Russia. So his, his conclusion correlates with that of Gesenius. There's just one more... Um, commentator that we'd like to draw your attention to and that is Gregoff. He wrote a book called Kiev Rus and he had this to say. Kiev, <coughs> Kiev Rus and he's speaking about this this territory here in pink it's known as, to historians as Kiev Rus Kiev Rus was for a long time known among the Greeks as Scythia or Scythia. These Toro Scythians call themselves the Rus. So they were not only known by neighbouring countries as Rosh or Ross, but that's what they called themselves as well. So with that information, we have fairly substantial reason to believe that Rosh, in Ezekiel 38, is in fact Russia. But we're going to see that there's a lot more that actually corroborates with that to substantiate that conclusion. What about Meshach and Tubal? Remember we said that Rosh, Meshach and Tubal really define, if you like, the um, the territory that is the, the primary dominion of Gog. Oh, and by the way, um, just for perspective, um, that's where Moscow would be relative to Kiev Rus. And you'll recall that we're told in Ezekiel 38 that Rosh, Rosh rather, was to the uttermost... Parts of the north relative to, of course, Israel. Well, where is Israel? Where is um, that territory relative to to Israel? It's directly north. Okay, what about Meshech and Tubal? What we find from um, a couple of reputable historians, such as Herodotus and McClintock, they tell us that Meshech and Tubal were known in the time of Darius and, and Xerxes as the Moshai and Tiburini. Bocart builds upon that and he states that the Moshai and Tiberini inhabited the Moshian Mountains, which is this, this territory here, between the Black and the Caspian Seas. But they didn't remain there. There's good reason to believe that they migrated. And we'll consider a passage relating to that a bit later. In fact, they migrated... Um, further north. In fact, we'll, we'll look at that passage now. Here's a couple of more um, comments about Meshech. Easton's Bible Dictionary has this to say. So we're talking now about the evidence that that the, um, where um, Meshech and Tubal were in the days of Ezekiel, that they actually migrated. Easton has this to say, During the ascendancy of the Babylonian Persians in Western Asia, the Moshi were subdued, but it seems probable that a large number of them crossed the Caucasus range and spread over the northern steppes, mingling with the Syrians. There they became known as the Muscovs and gave that name to the Russian nation and its ancient capital, Moscow, by which they are still generally known throughout the east. Bocart, who we've um, quoted previously, goes on to say, It is credible that from Ross and Meshech, of whom Ezekiel speaks, descended the Russians and Moscovites, nations of the greatest celebrity in European Scythia. Well, what about Tubal? It's a bit more difficult to find um, conclusively information on Tubal. Some commentators would say they migrated north and went to the area of what we would call today Siberia. Be that as it may, it's not really consequential for what we're considering tonight. There's enough evidence, and we've only presented a little bit of it, there's enough evidence to establish that Rosh and Mishek are associated with modern-day Russia. Okay, there's other countries mentioned um, in Ezekiel 38. We're just going to make brief comments about them. There were three African and Middle East countries mentioned, and these are probably more familiar to us. Persia, known today as Iran. The territories aren't exactly the same, but um, Iran occupies the territory previously occupied by Persia. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. Now, it is worth noting that Persia in Old Testament... Sorry, Ethiopia in Old Testament times included what is modern-day Sudan... Ethiopia. The other nations that were mentioned were Goma and Tagama. We don't have time to look at these but the the one point I want to make is we talked a little bit um, earlier about migration, about um, countries that were known in the time of um, Ezekiel migrating to other places in Europe and Josephus, who was a famous Jewish historian of the first century, has this to say about that migration. Japheth, one of the sons of Noah, had seven sons, who, proceeding from their primitive seats in the mountains of Taurus and Imanus, that's the the area between the Black and Caspian Seas, ascended Asia to the river Tanis or Don, and there, entering Europe, penetrated as far westward as the Straits of Gibraltar. That's all we want to say about um, Goma and Tagama. We just simply don't have time to look in detail at those two, two territories. So having established that Rosh and Meshach identify Russia, that means that Gog is the head of the Russian Confederacy. Now today that position of course is occupied by Vladimir Putin. Who will occupy that position at the time when this, these events take place? We don't know. So why is it that the movements of Russia herald the return of Jesus Christ? That's our title tonight, isn't it? Well, quite simply this, that when Russia comes down into Israel, as foretold in Ezekiel 38, that it's going to prompt divine intervention. Jesus Christ will return and vanquish the enemy from the land of Israel. We're going to see when we go to Zechariah 14 the other things that Christ will do when he returns. But suffice to say for now that this invasion is a trigger. It's a trigger for Christ to return, as we're going to see. So what we want to do now is to say, okay, if that is the case, if Russia is indeed the one spoken of in Ezekiel 38, what signs are there or what developments are there in the last, say, 70 years that are pointers to the accomplishment of this event. And we we believe that there are numerous ones. The first and most obvious one is that for Russia to invade Israel, God's people, that they must be in the land. It goes without saying, doesn't it? Now, that's not a given. You know, we're in 2021, but if we lived in 1947, that wouldn't have been an accomplished fact because Israel was founded in 1948, or we might say refounded. You'll recall, I say that because you'll recall that in the first century in AD 70, the Romans sacked Jerusalem, they were fed up with the Jews, they scattered them to the four corners of the earth. And so for over 2,000 years, the nation of Israel was in the dust. It was as though they were dry bones but in 1948 those dry bones came back to life and you know that very imagery of dry bones coming back to life is actually used in the Bible to describe the revival of the nation of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 37 the revival of the nation of Israel is foretold And it's described that way. As the prophet had revealed to him what God was going to do, he saw these bones in a a very dry valley. And as he watched, the bones came to life. And they had flesh on them. And they were (coughs) renewed. And that whole vision that the prophet saw was God's way of showing to him, and God explained what what the prophecy meant, that I'm going to bring my people back to life again after a long period. He did it in 1948. So that was a miraculous resurrection. Now, there's something else we want to bring to your attention. If we wind back the clock to the early 1900s, there was something preventing this from happening. There was something preventing Israel from being re-established in the land as a nation. And that something was the presence of the Ottoman Empire. I want to draw your attention to that um, for a particular reason which I'll show you in a moment. So the Ottomans had to be pushed out of what was then called Palestine. And you might be aware that Britain and Australia played a significant part in doing that. You may have um, learnt through history that The Australian Light Horse Brigade, for example, was involved in pushing the Turks out of southern Israel. And if you go to Beersheba today, there's actually quite a a significant monument there to the Australian Light Horse Brigade. But that, that event, the pushing of the Turks out of Israel, marked a very significant milestone prophetically, and we'll show you why. This is what the Middle East looked like in 1878. The the dark coloured area represents the Ottoman Empire. You can see that they occupied this territory here where Israel was to be established. So we're talking here about something like 70 or 80 years before Israel was established. Something had to happen to push them out of the land. What took place? Well, first of all, Britain became what the Bible calls King of the South when it took Egypt from the Ottomans in 1882. 1882, Britain was in Egypt. In 1911, Italy took Libya from the Ottomans. But then another very significant event happened, which we've just alluded to. In 1917-18, the British pushed the Ottomans out of Palestine. Now, why are we drawing your attention to this event? not only because it was a precursor to Israel being established and therefore Ezekiel 38 being fulfilled, but because what is said of that pushing of the Turk out of um, Palestine, the Bible says that that would happen at the time of the end. That's what we read in Daniel chapter 11. So we're living, in biblical terms, We're living in the time of the end. So we've turned a corner. We're now in the last phase of God's work. Okay. If Russia is going to have the military um, capacity to do what Ezekiel 38 says, we would expect then that Russia in the latter days is going to be a, a sizeable military power you don't just push over Israel easily. I mean, Israel has itself one of the biggest um, military um, capacity in the world. So, have a read of this. In 2018, the Pentagon, which is of course the, the part of the um, United States government that is involved in administering its defence forces, did a study and wrote a paper and their conclusion, which is fairly self-evident, that China and Russia outpace terrorism as the greatest threat to the US. It is increasingly clear, says the paper, that China and Russia want to shape a world consistent with their authoritarian model, gaining veto authority over other nations' economic, diplomatic and security decisions. The strategy also pointed to Russia's increasingly aggressive manoeuvres Where? In the Ukraine and Syria. Now, that's very significant because they are the territories that the Bible says Russia will take in preparation for coming down into Israel. So, if the greatest military power on earth says, hey, Russia's a risk, then that speaks for itself so far as Russia's military power is concerned. Now, we're also told in in um, Daniel chapter 11, that when Russia comes down into the Middle East, it's going to do so with many ships. This map shows us of where Russia currently has military bases. Sevastopol, which is um, in the Black Sea, Tartus, which is in Syria, some, I think, about 10 years ago, it established a lease agreement, a 100-year lease agreement with the Syrians, Under that agreement, it has um, an entitlement to bring nuclear warships into Tartus. It can um, bring its uh, military aircraft into their airspace. Basically, it can treat the territory as its own. And just in recent times, in the last 12 months, Russia has signed an agreement with Sudan. Now, Sudan is one of the countries that Ezekiel 38 says will be confederate with Russia. Let's see what... um, this article says about this new deal that Russia has struck with the Sudanese. In return for access to the port in Sudan, Russia assumes responsibility for modernisation of the Sudanese military. That's interesting, isn't it? And partial defence of air and maritime approaches to Sudan, thus effectively making this African nation's Russia's military ally. All this will carry implications for the Indo-Pacific maritime security. Now, the next feature or development that we want to bring to your attention has to do with Russia's presence to the north of Israel. Now, very briefly, in the Bible there are patterns. I'm going to give an example of one of those patterns, and that is... In Daniel chapter 11, it describes battles between powers immediately to the north and south of Israel. And it describes those powers as the king of the north and king of the south. Now, during the time, um, during the 2nd and 3rd century BC, those kings of the north and south were the generals of Alexander the Great. But the interesting thing is that in the latter days... The king of the north is going to come to life again. But it's not going to be one of the Alexandrian kings. It's going to be Russia. So what's the relevance of that? The relevance is this. Russia is going to emerge as the new king of the north in the latter days. It's going to occupy the same territory of the king of the north back in the 2nd and 3rd century BC. But it's going to have a new identity. It's going to be Russia. This map shows us the territory we can expect Russia to take, this territory shown in the sort of maroon color. I've shown two different shades there. There's good reason to believe that the darker territories will be controlled by Russia, and the lighter ones will be confederate with Russia, being Iran. And I say that because Persia is mentioned, gets a special mention in Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11. So what we're bringing to your attention is this. Do you know where Russia is at the moment? relative to that map. It's here. It's already in Syria and, in fact, within five kilometres of Israel. Russia has taken the opportunity to establish itself in Syria. It has a naval port, troops on the ground and it's establishing air bases. It's a movement that is a precursor to Russia taking these territories. So Russia's going to become king of the north. Having become king of the north, what the Bible tells us then is that there's another significant step that Russia will take that we want to draw to your attention. And that is Russia is going to take Istanbul, or what was previously known as Constantinople, why might Russia want to take Istanbul? If you don't know where Istanbul is, it's just up here in this narrow waterway between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. If you're a military person, a strategist, it's not hard to work out why Russia might want control of that territory. It's got a port up at Sevastopol, but it wants to have unfettered access down into the Mediterranean so that it can conduct its... Um, Maneuvers as it sees fit. Now it's interesting, just as a slight aside, you know, Russia came very close to taking um, Istanbul in 1917, but God did something to prevent that. In fact, when the Allies were, you recall how we saw how the Allies, Britain, um, France, etc., um, pushed the Turks out of um, out of Palestine. Well, it actually struck a secret deal, and the deal went like this. Russia, you help us get rid of the Turks, and what we'll do is we'll give you this territory here. Now, Bible prophecy said that wasn't to happen at that time. God intervened. In 1917, there was a Bolshevik revolution in Russia. It completely distracted Russia from participating in the war against Turkey, so much so that when the Allies did take Istanbul, that they said to Russia, well, we don't feel that we have to, you know, comply with the agreement because you're no longer the power that you were when we made the deal. The country's had a change of government. Interesting, isn't it, how the time wasn't right, but Russia clearly wants control of that waterway. The next point we want to bring to your attention is that we've already seen from Ezekiel 38 that Russia will be confederate with some African countries. Sudan, which is, um, or Ethiopia, which is modern-day Sudan and Ethiopia, and also Libya. The question is, why not with Egypt? And the simple answer is, because Russia is going to conquer Egypt. It's not going to be confederate with it. So is there any evidence to suggest that Russia is working towards establishing alliances with these African countries? And the answer is absolutely. In 2019, just two years ago, Russia under Putin held the first Russian-African summit. At that summit was almost every African country. Believe it or not, they could keep them in one room without killing each other. But That's what Putin did. He took the initiative in 2019 to get together all the leaders of those African countries. But he had some special conversations on the side with some of them. Sudan was one of those countries. This is what um, a commentary, one of the news releases, said about the meeting of Putin and the Prime Minister of Sudan. Russia's interest in a stronger partnership with Khartoum is not just about Moscow's interest in Sudan. Moscow's agenda in Sudan must be understood within the context of Russia's vision for its role in the Horn of Africa, the Red Sea and the sub-Saharan Africa at large. So that's Sudan, as we said, encapsulated within what the Bible calls Ethiopia. Ethiopia. What about Ethiopia? Mr Putin had a meeting with the leader of Ethiopia as well in 2019. And this is what they had to say. I would like to thank the government of Russia, so this is the leader of Ethiopia, I'd like to thank the government of Russia for always standing alongside Ethiopia when it was forced to defend its independence and sovereignty. We acknowledge Russia as a key partner in our development in the world and Ethiopia wants to further strengthen this cooperation prime minister of ethiopia to which putin replied at the beginning of our conversation i would like to note that russia and ethiopia have joined very sorry enjoyed very warm relations for many many years The history of the diplomatic relations between our states is over 120 years long, said Vladimir Putin. What about Libya? Just briefly, we know that Russia is um, trying to do some military deals with Libya, including selling jets that can be used in a proxy war against Turkey. Now, is there anything to suggest that there might be something taking place which would alienate the Sudan and Ethiopia from Egypt? Remember, Russia comes down, he's going to take Egypt, but he's going to be confederate with the neighbours of Egypt. So is there anything to suggest that there might be a cause for division between Ethiopia? Sorry, between Egypt and Ethiopia and Sudan? Yes, there is. And it's the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Goes without saying, if you did... Um, geography at school, you will know about the Nile River. It starts in Ethiopia, it makes its way to Egypt through Sudan. The Ethiopians have built a massive dam just near the border with Sudan and you can imagine what effect that will have on Egypt. It's already causing significant tension and why? It's going to cut Egypt's supply of water and electricity by 30%. That's quite significant. Perhaps that's going to be one of the contributing factors to a disengagement between those African countries. Okay. There's something else we want to bring to your attention, which is another uh, relatively recent development concerning Russia. The Bible tells us, and we don't have time to explain the the reason for this, but happy for you to write to us and we can provide further information on some of these points that we're making um, to you. What the Bible tells us is in the latter days, we can expect Russia to develop an alliance with both the Greek Orthodox, or sorry, Russian Orthodox, and the Roman Catholic religions. And there are signs of that happening. If we wind the clock back to the early 1900s, you might remember that the, um, the presidents of, of the USSR, as it was then, were absolutely against Christianity. I mean, they, they destroyed hundreds of churches in Russia and they prevented um, people from practising their religion. So compared to then, there's significant changes taking place in Russia now. You may have seen in the press that in the last um, eight years, Putin has been to see the Pope three times. Why is he interested in forming an alliance with the Pope? Because he's smart. He knows that if you want to develop an alliance with Western Europe, which he intends to do, you've got to get to the hearts of the people. And Putin's going to convince them that he is the protector of the Christian religion. And he's going to use that as one of his excuses, you might say, for going into Turkey and getting rid of the Muslims and getting back the large cathedral that's in Istanbul, which was a, initially a, a Christian cathedral built by um, Justinian. And just on that point, if you, if you want to... To look at a model of how Russia is going to behave in the latter days, then look at the Byzantine Emperor uh, um, Justinian. Justinian as we learn from uh, Daniel chapter 11, and we apologise for not having the time to substantiate this to you ladies and gentlemen, we go to Daniel chapter 11, we see once again another pattern. In former times during the, um, during the Roman Empire the emperor that was in Constantinople, one of those emperors was Justinian. And his alliance with the Roman Catholic Church is typical of what we can expect in the latter days when we have a new um, ruler in Constantinople. We can expect the same alliance with the Roman Catholic Church and we can see evidence of that forming before our eyes. So let's just review then what we've seen so far. Six steps towards Ezekiel 38, the revival of Israel and the land, the growth in Russia's military power, Russia heading to becoming the king of the north, taking those territories to the north of Israel in the Middle East. Russia will then take Constantinople or what is currently known as Istanbul. It will form an alliance with those African countries and with the Greek Orthodox or I should say, with the Russian Orthodox and Catholic religions. So how how is all of that going to herald the return of Christ? Well, as we said, when Russia comes down into the Middle East, it's going to trigger divine intervention. Now, we haven't, to this point in time, explained just what that divine intervention looks like. We're going to now move to the second part of our address and we're going to look at the impacts of what happens when God intervenes to deliver his people Israel. We're going to go to Zechariah chapter 14. If you've got a Bible, you might like to turn it up at Zechariah 14. And of course, we don't have the time to deal with Zechariah 14 in any detail, but we're going to point out to you some significant things. We said earlier that Zechariah 14 um, overlaps, if you like, or is a parallel record of Ezekiel 38. What are the indications that that's the case? Well, when you read this record, you find that it speaks of verse 2, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. So both have a, a battle, both describe a battle that involves all nations. Likewise, as we're going to see, there's going to be divine intervention. We didn't consider it, but in Ezekiel 38, God says that in that day when Russia comes down, there's going to be a great shaking in the land of Israel. He's talking talking about a literal earthquake. Zechariah gives us more information about that earthquake and the impact of it. So there are just some, some indicators that This is talking about the same event, and it's actually a sequel, if you like. It extends further into the future. And what it does is it tells us about how this divine intervention is going to take place. I want to draw your attention, first of all, to the the topographical changes that this great earthquake is going to create. Verse 3, it says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east, toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove towards the north, and half of it toward the south. That is an enormous seismic event an event never seen before that's going to result in the Mount of Olives, which is only just a kilometre to the the east of Jerusalem, it's going to be split in two, and the halves of the mountain are going to move apart. Now, notice in verse 4 that it says, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Whose feet? It's the feet of Jesus Christ. You might recall, if you're familiar with the Bible, in Acts chapter 1, after Christ was resurrected, he spent 40 days and 40 nights with the apostles. And from the Mount of Olives, he ascended to heaven. And after he ascended, an angel appeared to those men who were gathered there, to the apostles. And the angel said to them, why are you looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, which you have saw go into heaven, is going to come in like manner as you have seen him go. In other words, in a literal bodily fashion. That's what's being spoken of here in verse 4. It goes on to say in verse 5, um, towards the end of the verse, well, actually, we'll read the whole verse. It makes it easier to pick up the, um, the meaning of the last part. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. It's going to be, when it says the Lord my God shall come, it's going to be his representative that he's going to send. He's going to send Jesus Christ and all the saints. Who are they? Well, they're the the faithful believers of all ages who have been resurrected to life given immortality, and now they've got a work to do. It's a wonderful work. They're going to proceed to work with Christ to change this world to be a better place. That's the form of divine intervention that Ezekiel talks about. So it's going to be Christ and the believers that will come with him. What's that going to result in? In verse 9, we're told that there's going to be a universal world Rule, Verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth and in that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. That's never happened. One king over all the earth. Psalm 72, in speaking of that, says that Christ's dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. It will be universal. The White House can close down. Parliament House in Canberra will close down. Westminster will close down. There will be one world government. But not only that, and perhaps more importantly, there's going to be one religion. You see, what we read in verse um, 16 is that the nations are going to learn that Jesus Christ is that King. And it says in verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations, and note that, everyone that is left of all nations. In other words, as we said, this invasion we're talking about is going to impact the whole world. It's going to impact all nations and there is going to be significant loss of life. If God's going to cut off, destroy two-thirds of his own people, then we can only extrapolate to what that means on a world scale. And that's why Zechariah says it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king. They're going to go up to Jerusalem to worship Christ and for good reason. He's not going to be like any other dictator. He's going to be a benevolent dictator, one that will care for the poor and needy And from Jerusalem, there will go forth administration at the hand of the saints, the faithful believers, who will ensure that there is justice and judgment and that everybody in the world will not be prevented from reading the Bible. I mean, there are some countries of the world where you can't even download a Bible app. God's going to make sure, or Christ is going to make sure that that changes. They're very significant events So we've seen from Ezekiel 38 that Russia is going to come down into the Middle East. It's going to be with a confederacy of nations that will be successful in absolutely conquering Israel. Israel's going to be humbled and they're going to turn to God. And when the Lord Jesus Christ appears and delivers them, They will recognise him. We don't have time, but if we were to go to the previous chapter in Zechariah, in Zechariah 13, it talks about that, that wonderful moment when Christ reveals himself to his nation. And they shall say, what are these wounds in thine hands? And he will say, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. And there will be a time of mourning in Israel when they come to acknowledge that the one that they crucified or that their forebears crucified is actually their deliverer. And the remainder of um, Zechariah 14 talks about that. So we've also seen from Zechariah 14 the two great changes that are going to take place. One worldwide government, one worldwide religion and form of worship. I'd like to know what's going through your mind at this present point in time, ladies and gentlemen. You may be saying, well, do you know what? Thanks for those indicators. I think I'll just wait and see. I'll wait and see what happens. And if these things begin to come to pass, if I see Russia taking that territory to the north of Israel, establishing alliances with the, with the churches and with the African countries. If I see it, take Constantinople, then I'm going to be prompted to do something. Well, do you know what? we would say two things. First of all, you can't play chess with God. He'll beat you. You can't play games with God. He's looking for willing hearts and minds. That's the first thing. The second thing is, Christ gave a warning to those that were alive at his time, and he had this to say. He said, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let him that reads understand, then get out of Jerusalem. Christ expected his listeners to understand the prophets, including Daniel, which we've referred to tonight. And he expected them to do something about it. And do you know what? For those that took heed and when they saw Jerusalem compassed with armies, which is what that expression, um, the abomination that makes desolate means, when the believers saw Jerusalem compassed with armies, they got out. But do you know what happened to those that did nothing and waited and said, well, I'll wait and see? They were trapped. They were caught inside the walls of Jerusalem, and Josephus the historian and Moses wrote of what happened inside that city. The city was besieged, and the siege became so great that mothers ate their children to survive. We urge you, ladies and gentlemen, to not wait but to act. We have the opportunity of not just being escaping these events to come, but we, we have a much greater hope. You know, we must stress upon you that we're not talking about these things to scare you. We're talking about these things so that hopefully you will have confidence that the Bible is true and the rest of the Bible is true, which talks about how we can become God's accepted children, we have to repent, change our lives and be baptised. It's not really a big ask to get the infinite return on investment. When these events have been accomplished, there's going to be a time upon the earth where it says that God will wipe away all tears. There'll be no more sorrow or crying and there's going to be a rejuvenated world and we can be part of it. And we hope you make the decision today to do that. Thank you.